morning, impactors. And happy Thanksgiving. Stop. Now on to Christmas. That's all Thanksgiving gets. We only give it a little short time. And before we get into all the Christmas stuff, see how we're ready beforehand? Some of you are like, I'm a little upset about that. It's too soon. It's a little bit offending, Pastor. Well, try 91.9. They start playing Christmas music when? July? Is it now? Pretty early. Uh, first of all, tonight is our first ever night of worship. So we... Uh, hoping for more than that for our first ever night of worship. That means a lot of you don't know what a night of worship is. Well, it is what we, listen, singing is not all worship is. And we feel like most churches, not, you know, ours is a, a young church, 14 weeks now, but most churches really don't understand what worship is all about and, uh, and how much it entails and that it's more than just singing songs or having somebody sing songs to you, which is, is so much more, it's praying, it's, it's taking in God's word, it's the sacraments, baptism, um, communion, and, and then even infinitely more than that, it's communing with God. And so tonight we want to worship longer than three songs, longer than the prescribed real short time, and teach our brand new church how to go deeper. The word of God says that he, God, inhabits the praises of his people. Think about what I just said. He inhabits the praises. He's enthroned upon the praises of his people, it says in the Psalms. That means when we sing and we move in and press into God and worship, he exists right there. He, he indwells in a special way. And so we want to call him. We want this, like Will was saying, to be a movement of the Holy Spirit, Impact Church. It actually makes an impact. All right, back to the Christmas thing you thought I forgot. The Christmas thing, not surprising. Let me, let me ask you a question. Raise your hand if Christmas is your favorite time of the year. I want to see this. All right, I would say half, maybe a little over half. And that's not surprising because every, every year I do that. How many of you are going, we know, Pastor Rob, every year we see you do this thing over and over. You always ask us, well, I want to know if it's changing. I want to know if it's going to be different next year. It, it does seem to be going down a little bit, but still, most people's favorite time of the year is Christmas. But this might be surprising to you. Shockingly, for some people... It's the most dreaded and depressing time of the year. A surprisingly high amount of people come into this season just kind of just dreading it, just hoping for the best, just hoping to get through it because it raises all kinds of emotions they don't like. And here's why. It's because there's no other time of the year when God and eternity and purpose and why you're here are just in your face. I mean, you're going to be, you can't look away. I mean, you are faced with this stuff and you may try all year long to not face this, but at Christmas, you really can't run away. And some of you are like, what about Easter, heretic? Well, Easter's like that too, but not as much. In fact, Easter in Christendom is honestly more important than Christmas. It's miraculous and beautiful that Jesus came, born of a virgin, wrapped around human flesh, beautiful miracle, but he came for why we celebrate Easter. He came to give his life in our place, and then he rose again and conquered death, and that's Easter. But Christmas, it's face-to-face -face with this kind of stuff, more at Christmas for bad reasons, not just good reasons. Some of the bad reasons are the commercialism and the things that, that, that are supposed to happen in this season that don't quite happen. What are some of the sayings? Christmas time, peace on earth and what? Goodwill towards your fellow man. Does it, don't answer this out loud because you might hurt my feelings. Does it, does it feel like that? Something? I mean, sometimes it just doesn't. Sometimes it feels like, Goodwill goes out the window Christmas time. And what kicks off Christmas time? A very dark thing called Black Friday, right? And in Black Friday, it's peace and goodwill to men. Or get out of my way or I'll kill you. <laughs> that, that's Black Friday. While I clamor to get 
I don't know, a 60-inch screen TV that's $10 off the usual price. Listen, that's $10 off. If you get in my way, you'll have to die. Because typically, I'm not spending that. I mean, think about how crazy we get this time of year. So things are in our face. Because in on the one hand, the season's supposed to be joy and peace and love and goodwill to fellow men. And on the other hand, it comes around and we see the way it is. And, and people go, this doesn't fit. This doesn't fit. I know on November 29th is a day of official mourning in the Singleton household. Because for three of us, I should say. For me, my daughter Juliana, my son Nathan, it is a time of intense mourning. For Michelle, she loves it. She loves it because it's official 24 hours of a singleton home makeover. And she loves that. While we transform the house into a winter wonderland. And we dread it. We try to get out of it. We try to postpone it. If we have people over for Thanksgiving, we try to get them to spend the night. Stay as long as you can. Stay a week. Stay a month. Please don't leave. If you leave, we have to go into this whole thing. And, and every year, I'm the worst. I admit it. I, I mean, I complain. And, and my wife's secretly telling me, now you know, kids, because they're here. Shigley tell me behind the scenes, the way you act is the way they will act. Be an example so they can follow. So I'm trying. My kids are trying to hold it back right now. I go, you're not trying very hard. Dad, it's pretty easy to see how you feel about it. So I do want you to know this, Michelle. It's worth it because if you look now, it's beautiful. And we look at it and we go, man, you know what? It's worth it every year. You go through that hard work and everything, but it transforms into a lovely thing. It's beautiful. But listen, for a lot of people, they never get there. I mean, spiritually speaking, they don't get there. They never get to the beauty and the wonder of Christmas because they never get through the hard work of the makeover, the hard work of facing things that God wants you to face and that you have to face as a human being. I mean, it's kind of like the valley. And you may have been on a nice mountain where you really don't want to go in the valley, but there's a higher mountain and a better mountain on the other side. And there's only one way to get there. There's only one way. You've got to go through the valley. But we sit there on the mountain, even though it's just a little foothill, and we go, well, I'd love to get there, but I, I'm not signing up for that. I don't want to go through that valley. So every year we're faced, like I said, with loving, peace on earth, goodwill toward our fellow men. Each year we see nearly the opposite. In fact, there's, there's drunk driving that'll come up with New Year's. There's... There's wild parties, like I said, Black Friday. There's family feuds. How many of you family comes over that you don't see any other time of the year and you're just trying to hold it together, make sure weird Uncle Al doesn't freak out and doesn't say anything weird? And I mean, a lot of it's about getting through it. And that's a shame. There's even this new thing called the knockout game. Anybody heard of that? Going all over the country, a game, a game where unsuspecting people be walking around and you just reach out and punch them and knock them. I mean, that's the reality of where we're at right now as a culture. So it hardly feels like peace on earth, goodwill towards men. So as a result, in, instead of embracing it and leaning into God and seeing what it's all about, a lot, of, a lot of you right now, even sitting here right now, are going to sort of buckle in, hang on, close your eyes, and, and try to get through the Christmas roller coaster. You know, how many of you, when you ride a roller coaster, ride it with your eyes open? All right, a few. How many of you ride it with your eyes closed? It's about half and half, and it's kind of, some of you are going to go into Christmas spiritually with your eyes closed. You're going to hang on and just hope to get to the other side. You don't really get it. You see the conflict. Let's just get through it. Some of you are going to go through eyes wide open spiritually, embrace every bit of it, and encounter God. And that's my wish for all of you. That's what it's for. So for a lot of people, Christmas raises unanswered questions. And unanswered questions are okay if they eventually get answered. But unanswered questions, if they don't get answered, they lead to a little thing called doubts. And doubts are one of the most powerful and draining emotions known to mankind. It's really the opposite of hope, right? 
I mean, if you have hope, it means that you really believe something good is coming, but doubts means you doubt it is coming. Or maybe worse, I doubt something good's coming. I believe something bad's coming. So doubt, if left unchecked, is a really bad thing. In fact, doubt can grow into sin. So people try a variety of ways to deal with it. Here's some that I have found. People will try chanting. I've actually known people that did this. I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. Really? Sound like a broken record. But I, I do, I believe. If I say this enough, I know it'll be true. Or ask God to banish those doubts. I rebuke you, demon of doubts, in the name, or, or demonize everything. Just call your doubts demons and rebuke them and rebuke them. And then they're left more discouraged because they don't go away. They don't go away. Some people I've heard, and this is not a bad idea, but it's not a gimmick either. They'll fast the doubts away. You know what fasting is? Some of you have done it. I mean, just they don't eat. They'll spiritually try to lean in and, and not eat and hope that fasting will somehow work like a genie in the bottom, like magic, and the doubts will just be banished. We'll starve them is what we'll do. Some people give in to them. And maybe they've been fighting doubts for a long time, so they just give in to them. And they just let them grow. And then you, they just grow into a full-blown card-carrying atheist. And then this time of the year is just miserable. This time of the year is just, ah. Oh. I mean, now I have nothing to look for. I wish we didn't even celebrate Christmas. And some people will solve it with this. Do you want to know what's in here? Ever see the Polar Express? How many of you have seen that? How many of you have seen that true story magic movie? Okay, good. Hands up. In here, I have the magic bell. Kids, if you're under 10 years old, let me see your hands. Raise your hands, kids. Where are you? Come on, raise them high, proud kids. I see kids under 10 years old in here. Raise your hand. Let me see you. Up, up, up. All right, how about under 12? Raise them, raise, raise them. All right, we got a handful. We got some. Some are being back in children's church. So, kids, here's the deal. It's a magic bell. And if you still believe that, that Santa's real and Christmas is real and all that stuff like that, then you can hear the bell. So I just want those hands to go up again. Can you hear this, kids? Raise your hand if you can hear this. Hi. Yeah, you hear that? Then you're good. <laughs> Christmas is still going to work for you. All right, plug your ears, kids, because I'm going to go through a nasty thing with your parents. Plug your ears, kids. Parents, can you hear it? No? Well, it's going to be a tough sermon for you because you have no hope or belief or anything. Kids, you're going to get a lot out of this. So Magic Bell, Polar Express, little cute things that people might try. Some people for this season will flat out panic. And some people will just deny, deny, deny. And a whole host of other reactions. But what do most of those reactions have in common? Well, they're not good. They're not good. They're not smart ways to deal with doubt. But what if I told you that doubt can be good? Doubt is good. I feel like that guy on Wall Street. Greed is good. No, doubt is, is actually good. Doubt can be good for you. What if I told you that God doesn't, isn't afraid of our doubts? He isn't going, no, 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 no. Get away, don't doubt. Oh, ruined. He's not doing that at all. He's not afraid of him, offended by him, angered by him. In fact, they can be good. And we'll learn that this morning. It's true. Rather than fearing our doubts, denying them, what if this year, just for fun, what if we faced them and allowed our doubts 
to cause us to lean into Jesus more this year than ever before. I'm just saying this. If you're afraid of a roller coaster, coming to the park every day and looking at it and going, yep, still scared, let's go home. That's not a good idea. I mean, one day, you oh, but you really want to ride it. One day, it might be better if you just face it. I remember we went through this years ago with Nathan and Juliana in, in order, you know, looking at, what's that, the Intimidator. You know, and it was, it was intimidating for a long time. And literally, they'd go and they'd look at it and I don't want to ride it. And then finally, when they rode it, what did they say? That was fun, but they add this. That was nothing. That was nothing. And they don't mean like it's not fun, but they just meant, wow, why did I waste so much time running away from that when it was something fun I missed out on because I just didn't lean into it. So today I want you to lean into it. Lean into the Savior for answers, for strength, for your faith, instead of worrying that these doubts, if you don't push them away and, and ignore them, might weaken your faith. Because I don't think they will. I think they'll strengthen them. I mean, we might as well, right? Some of you that raised your hand that said you really like Christmas, but that was only about half of you. The rest of you are about ready to enter another one, buckled up and, and eyes closed, and it, it, you're ready to be miserable anyway. Let's change that. Let's make this the best time of year for everybody here. Because, listen, there's never been a human being in the history of the world that is not doubted. Let that sink in a minute. There's never been a human being in the history of the world that hasn't doubted. Do you doubt that? Never been a human being in the history of the world. That's true. Atheists doubt. I know. No, no big deal. You know that. They doubt so much that they live a life of doubt. But I don't know that I've ever really met an atheist that became an atheist that didn't doubt the atheism. I don't know that I've ever met one. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in any of that. We're just here. We're just plasma. And then we go, really? What if there's a God? I don't believe there's a God-ish. I mean, there might be. I don't think there is. I'm 99%. I mean, now they start doubting their life of, of doubt. Everybody has doubts. Baby Christians certainly doubt because they're just learning things. And as each thing's inter introduced, they've, they're, they're going to deeper maturity. Mature Christians, though, doubt too because Satan wants to get you to doubt. But he doesn't want you to just doubt. He wants you to live in that doubt. So mature Christians are going to battle with it. And, and hopefully that's good news for some of you. They're going, I battle with it. Does that mean I'm weak? No. The greatest Christians of all time have doubted. Better put that in perspective. What are you saying, Pastor Rob? Are you saying Billy Graham doubts? Yes. He talked about it. He even wrote about it extensively. He's had doubts. He has an incredible faith, but of course Satan's tried to get him. Don't you think Satan would want Billy Graham? I think at this point, that's game over. He's reached millions, so that's a lost battle for him. What about Mother Teresa? Absolutely. Not you, Pastor Rob. Please tell me not, not you. Sorry. Yeah, I've, I've fought doubts myself. Everybody. This morning, I want us to look at someone that Jesus called great. Please let that sink in. Jesus called them great. Jesus didn't do that very much. But he called this individual great, greater than a lot of people. You'll find out how many. In fact, we got to get this right, right now. But this person that Jesus called great, he had to go through the valley of doubt, just like everybody else. First, here's where Jesus said it. If you got your Bibles, turn to Luke 7. Chop, chop, hurry up. I only got one service today, so you can't stay for the next one. And Luke 7, verse 28, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist 
And look what he said. This is so cool. I tell you, among those born of women, by the way, who would that include? That, that'd be everyone. Some of you going, no, there's the other ones from the stork and the alien. No, that, this is everybody. Those born of women, there's no one greater than John. You've you got to let that sink in, what Jesus just said. He's, at that point in time, greater than anyone? Yes. Let me put it in perspective. This would include Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. John the Baptist, greater than him. This would include King David, Moses, who led his people out, two million Israelites, out of bondage. Noah, Queen Esther, Elijah, King Solomon, Samuel, Isaiah. I can go on and on. No one born of women up to that point in time greater than John. John the Baptist is greater than all of them. So here's what I think. I think you're not getting it. I also think I'm trapped. You think these Christmas trees are going to stop me? Nope. You done preaching, Pastor Rob? <laughs> I like being among you, and so we get this high school that has a cliff. I'd like to build a little thing where I can walk out here. I, I want to walk out here because there's some points. I hope you listen to all the points, but there's some points you really can't miss. Stephen, you didn't think I was going to pick on you, did you? Are you listening? Watch, watch this. Stephen didn't think I was going to pick on him. Stand up, Stephen, for a second, would you? And here's why it's probably dumb for me to pick on Stephen. So maybe I chose poorly. All right, have a seat. I want to ask you something. What if Jesus walked up to you and said, Stephen, I have plans for you. Your life is going to be great. In fact, Stephen, I, got, I have plans for you that I haven't had for anybody up until this point. Hear me. You are greater than anyone who has ever been born. You're greater than all of them. Now, let, me, just let that sink in a minute. It's not Pastor Rob telling you that. It's the Son of God saying that about you. Let that sink in a little bit. Jack, are you back? Yes. Jack is back. <laughs> I mean, praise God. We've been praying for Jack. He had pneumonia, and, and God really has healed him and healed you for a reason. So Jesus comes up to you and says, Jack, your whole life you've been doing a, a lot of things for me, and I, but now things are going to change because I've always pegged you as the greatest of all time. There's no one born of, among women ever, up until this whole point, millions and billions you're greater than all of them. Let, let that sink in. And let all of you think about that. What if Jesus, the Son of God, not Pastor Rob, but Jesus comes up to you individually right now and says, forget everybody else that's in here. I'm not playing favorites usually, but today I am. You're greater than all of them. Would that put a little wind in your sails? Kind of, sort of? Would you maybe reevaluate your life a little bit? Some of you are going, this is a serious message because I'm... I really want you to think about it. I've been nailed by that speaker before, so I'm wise to it. Would it cause you to refocus a little bit? Would it cause you to realign? Let's say you live for your job. Let's say you live for your, your sport. Let's say you like to golf on the weekend. But Jesus just told you this personally. Would you refocus maybe a little more to kingdom work? Would you say, well, I don't think he's, he's picking me to be the greatest banker of all time. I don't think he's really just said that so, I'd be the, so I could break par. So maybe it's something else. Would you refocus if you knew that? Hang on to that thought. Because Jesus is about to say that to all of you today. 
We can't be the greatest and then all of us be the greatest. It doesn't work. Do the math, Pastor Rob. You do the math. It does work. Tell you later how it does. These unbelievable words, gang, are made that much more incredible when we see what precedes them. These unbelievable words are made that much more incredible when we see what John the Baptist just did. Let's stand in the honor of God's word. I'm gonna read this passage to you and let's let it sink in. This is Luke 7, if you're following along, beginning with verse 16. And I want you to know that verse 16 is just sort of the lead in here. It's really verse 18 on that I want you to zero in on. Here's what's happening. They were, the whole crowd, they were all filled with awe and praised God. Why? Because Jesus has done miracles and taught that way he teaches again with authority. And they're just in awe. Religious leaders all the way down to the most common folk are in awe. A great prophet has appeared among us, they, they cried. God himself has come to help his people. They're getting close. This news about Jesus began to spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. Then John's disciples came to him about all these things. Wait, they came to who? John's disciples came to John. Where's John right now? Why did they have to come to John? John usually hangs around near Jesus. He's passed the baton. John's in prison now. He's got a death sentence over his head. He's in prison. Most people, I think it's on the east side. There's a tower, a little, a little tiny castle with a tower there. And literally Herod had him imprisoned right there. Solitary confinement awaiting death. But his disciples are still going across to visit him there. It's not that far from where Jesus is now. And he called two of them to stay after, and he said, he sent them back to Jesus and said, ask him this, are you the one who is to come? Are, are, are you the Messiah? Are, are you the one? Or should we expect someone else? Ouch. Are you the one because something's off? Should we start looking around for someone else? I'm about ready to give up. I have my doubts. By the way, and, and, I'll, and some of you are like, we're standing, Pastor. Remember that, right? Okay, we'll get through this. Where else, where in our culture do we use this same language? I wonder if they're the one. Where, where do we use that? Come on, guys. You wonder. Girls. Forget guys. Girls. What, do you ever use that language? He could be the one. I wonder if he's the one. Guys are like, I just found a hot girl, that's it. No, but girl, <laughs> girls are looking a little more deeper, going, he could be the one. You tell your friends, you, okay, hold that thought, because I want you to think about something. Why'd you say that? Or if you do say that about a girl, guys, why do you, how, how do you know? How do you know she could be the one? How do you know he could be the one? How do you know that? Why did you say the one? So we use that same language. Just hold on to that thought. Some of you are like, we got three thoughts now, I think, Pastor, we're holding on to it's getting pretty heavy in here, so I'll let you go in a minute. Verse 20, when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist, sent, I doubt they called him John the Baptist, that's what we call him, but John sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And I believe the disciples are probably a little sheepish asking this. It's John asking, it's not us, he's struggling right now, Lord, your cousin, John, just for clarification, has he wasted his time? Does he have this right? By the way, Jesus doesn't answer like this. What's the question again? Are you the one? Oh, yes. Go tell him. Yep, that's me. He never says that. Here's what he says. At that very time, first there's a setting. 
right when those disciples came at the very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you've seen and what you've heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. That's pretty specific, isn't it? Because the good news is proclaimed to the rich, the poor, everybody, the religious, the non-religious. But he says the good news is declared, proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Here's why that's significant, gang, because all of that specifically came word for word from the book of Isaiah, 600 years earlier. When the Messiah comes, he will do these things. The blind will receive sight through him. The lame will walk. Those who have leprosy will be cleansed. The deaf will hear. The blind will see. The dead will be raised. And that was what he was just doing. In fact, he had just raised the son of a widow in the same chapter. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John, all right? So what did John just do? Basically had massive doubts. And he, he even sent people, it's out now. He's like, I don't know. I've, have I wasted my time? And right after that, Jesus speaks to the crowd about John. And this isn't when, when people speak about somebody else. And by the way, you guys can be seated. I feel cruel. Some of you are, uh, 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 Listen, when in our society, if somebody leaves and they just said something mean about you and they leave the room, you wait for the door to shut and then you go, what a jerk, <laughs> right? You believe you just said that? I mean, I mean speak about, it's going to be bad. They just trashed you, you trashed them. This is about to be very good. He says, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? That's where John the Baptist taught, out in the wilderness. So he asked all these crowds of people, I mean, tons of people, thousands. He said, what did you go out to the wilderness to see with John the Baptist? A reed swayed by the wind. Some of you read that and go, this is so cryptic. What is that? Well, what's a reed? It's a little reed swayed by the wind, a little puff of wind, and it just moves. In other words, did you go to see a little wimpy guy? Did you go out there to see Pee Wee Herman? Is that what you were looking for when you went out there? Did you go to see the guys from the Big Bang Theory? Remember, the, you know, the nerds in there? Is that what you expected with John the Baptist? No, nobody went out there to see a little slumped over, skinny little wimp. No, you went to go see a powerful, strong, almost scary guy that you heard about. Did you go out there to see a, a pampered rock star? Is that what you were looking for? Did somebody say, look, Mumford and Sons is doing a concert in the wilderness. Go on, go out there, quick, get a good seat. Is that what you expected? Did you go out there looking for John Mayer? No, because this guy's humble, and you heard that too. And he gives glory to God, and you knew that. What did you go out? In fact, here it is, verse 25. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces, not out in the wilderness. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, you did, and you got one. And that prophet predicted something, and he paved the way. Yet I tell you, and he's more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. Now, this is Isaiah 2. I will send my messenger ahead of you, Messiah, who will prepare your way before you. And that's why we're talking about this before Christmas. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. There it is. So what makes this so incredible for you and me is I'm reading this this week. I'm going, he just got dissed by John incredibly, probably in front of some people. And they heard it. And what does Jesus say? I'm not afraid of John's doubts. Yes, John is strong. Yeah, in fact, he's greater than anybody who's been born to this point in time. I'm not afraid of that. 
This will strengthen his faith for the little time he has left. This will strengthen his faith. It'll strengthen the kingdom if he lets it. If he gets through this valley, he'll be fine. He'll be better. I'm not afraid. In fact, let me tell you how I feel about the guy who just doubted me. And you can extrapolate it into, let me tell you how God feels about you and I. Gang, this isn't uncommon for our great and loving God. It started right in the history of the world. Adam and Eve doubted God when Satan said to them in paradise, this is pretty good, but it could be better. That one rule, you break that rule and everything goes up a notch. And they, In fact, God's holding out on you. And they doubted God that he really was a good God. And God let them still go on with the program. He let them still have a relationship with them. Even though it was marred, he didn't say, that's it, I'm done, I'm starting over. Sarah and Abraham, Abraham, the father of the Jews, Sarah and Abraham laughed at God when he said, I'm still going to give you a son. I'm God, my wife's 99. And she's got no teeth. (laughs) But you're still going to do this? Yes. They laughed. God still made Abraham father of a great nation. Gideon, I love Gideon. I can relate to Gideon. Gideon got tapped on the shoulder to lead a great army against the Midianites. Only he was afraid, and he doubted God the whole time. In fact, he laid out tests for God, which you shouldn't do. He had this cloth, and he said, tomorrow morning, God, if I'm really the guy, because I doubt that I am, but if I am, I'm going to put this cloth out. And when the dew comes and the grass is all wet, I want this cloth to be dry. And so the next morning, he went out and checked, and the dew was there, and the grass was wet, and the cloth was dry. But you know what he did? He didn't fall on his knees and go, praise God, that's impossible, I'll lead the army. He said, that's pretty impressive. Can you do it in reverse? Could you make the grass all dry and then the cloth wet? And God, patient as he is, let him do it again, and he doubted. In fact, Gideon doubted him the whole way through, but God still used him. He called David a man after my own heart, never said about any man or woman ever again in Scripture except David, And he said this after that hideous year where David murdered and committed adultery. After. Elijah had this this, this battle with the prophets of Baal and Azurah and 800 prophets in all. Great victory from God. But then one woman, Queen Jezebel, said, I'm going to kill you. And he ran and had a pity party and said, kill me, God, because you don't love me anymore. I doubt you. It's pretty pathetic. But God still used them. God still used them. Thomas is called what? Doubting, Doubting Thomas. How'd you like to have that attached to you? I mean, never can talk about Thomas, probably in the all eternity, without calling him Doubting Thomas, because he had this one bout with doubt. That rhymes, right now. He commissioned Peter to go out and lead this movement called Christianity after. Peter denied Jesus three times. And to deny someone three times, you got to be struggling with doubt a little bit. The whole program's off. I doubt it. This isn't worth it. Somebody asks you, do you even know? No, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I have my doubts. No, I don't even know him. Never heard of him. You got the wrong guy. And Peter starts the church, preaches at Pentecost. The whole thing's kicked off through the greatest doubter of all time. I can go on and on. There's many more examples of the great patriarchs of the faith doubting God. But today I want to focus on how they got through that valley because here's the problem. If you camp out in the valley, you're done. You're done. God can't use you. But if you get through it, every mountain beyond the valley is better than the last. 
and you're closer to God than you were before. The key is found in the passage right before this that I sort of alluded to. It's found in earlier in chapter 7 of Luke. Just again, we'll get back to that in a moment. I'm going to quickly give you the three things that we can learn about doubt. The three things you can do if you embrace doubt in its gentle, early forms, and don't run away. This is it. Things about Jesus and how he feels. Number one, you got to get this. Jesus isn't surprised by our doubting. Get that through your head. He's not surprised. He's not like, wow, you're with the program. Pastor Rob, you're doing great. But was that a doubt? Did you just have a doubt? I saw it in your head. You had a doubt. I was not expecting that. That came out of left field. I can't use you. I really can't. You got to focus, Pastor Rob. No ADD. He doesn't call me Pastor Rob. But no ADD. You had a doubt. Sidelines. No. He's not surprised. Every doubt I'll ever have, every time I struggle from now to the day I see him face to face, he is already aware of. And if you're sitting there right now or listening to this right now, doubting, he knew that was coming. He's already aware of it. He's not worried about it. So the disciples asked Jesus directly, are you the one or should we look for someone else? It's not working out right. It's not the way we thought. It's not meeting our expectations. Should we look for someone else? question. Just think about this. That's mean, isn't it? I mean, that's like kind of, imagine somebody quarterbacking. Cam Newton. You're going to go up to him today before the game starts. You know, you're doing good, but not as good as we thought. Should we look for someone else? That's not good news for someone. That's a put down, right? What am I, not meeting your expectations? No, not really. That would have been a more logical question last year. This year, we wouldn't ask that, right? Because we have expectations of a winning quarterback, right? And if you're meeting them, we won't ask questions. We won't doubt. If you're not, oh, we might have messed up with you, Cam. Right? Well, that's how people are actually approaching God. But this is not a bad question. Every one of us needs to settle this question. Listen, look up here. By the way, with these lights, I can't tell if you are. Now I can. Look, right? You got to settle this question once and for all. Should we look for someone else? Pastor Rob, you shouldn't be telling people to, to wrestle through a question like that. You should be keeping them up. No, I want you to get all the way through that question to the other side, once and for all. Because listen, if you camp out asking that your whole life, you will do nothing for God, nothing. In fact, God, Jesus is pretty clear on it. He says, no one who puts their hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's all in. When you realize what he did for you, then you just go all in. doesn't mean you won't have doubts but you don't let go and go back to your old life and come back and go back and just live in the middle. Lukewarm is terrible way to live. So no one who puts their hand to the plow and starts with the kingdom and just keeps looking back. And it doesn't mean a pinky to the plow. It's all in, okay? You ever try pushing a plow with a pinky? You don't go very far. You need to really push into it. You really need to lean into it for it to work. You need to lean into God when you have doubts, not walk away. So, settle it. Is he the one the Bible says he is or not? And if not, walk away. So, this is exactly what happens to us. As has been rightly said, when the warm tropical air of our expectations collides with the icy cold of God's silence, we have doubts, right? The warm tropical wonderful feeling collides with the icy cold air of just God not answering. To me, that's worse than bad things happening. Just this valley of silence, right? I mean, most of the times I've had doubts in my life, it's just because I'm not really hearing anything. 
For me, that's harder. All right, so that's the first thing. Jesus is not surprised. The second thing, Jesus doesn't get angry when you doubt, so put that away. Quit trying to hide it from God. Isn't that nonsensical? Oh, I doubted. I don't think he caught that one. I don't, think, I, don't, I don't think he noticed. So let's just, mom's a word, say anything, bye-bye. No, he sees it. It's okay. Press in, lean in, talk to him about it. Don't try to hide it. In fact, he wants us to learn so much from doubts that we're patient with others who doubt. Where do you get that, Pastor Rob? Jude. You ever read Jude? Do you? Jude? Hey, Jude. Jude, you ever read Jude? It's only one chapter. You can't read Jude. Jude 1, 22. And you are to have mercy on those who doubt. Where'd that come from? Well, everyone's going to have doubts. So if we attack people or ostracize them, and that's usually what we do, how could you have doubt? Are you all in or not? Then we'd ostracize everybody. What Jude's saying is everybody has doubts. So when people go into this valley, hold their hand, help them through it. They'll have to help you through it next. Because we live in this physical world now. The Holy Spirit is spiritual. Some of these things we can't see. It's tough. There will be valleys of doubt. And we might think that someone who struggles with doubting needs to be ostracized or marginalized until they grow up and deal with it. But no, we all deal with it. And we're to show mercy. So notice how in answering these messengers, Jesus didn't say, how dare he doubt? Unbelievable. Didn't see that coming. He's a traitor. John's a traitor. I was waiting for those disciples to leave because we're going to get him. What's wrong with him? Behold, no one who wishes to be great in my kingdom will ever ask questions or have doubts. Write that down. That's the 10th, 11th commandment now. It's already 10. I just remembered. Behold, anybody who doubts is not. No, it says anybody who dives in and starts walking with them and goes back to their old life. That's not fit for the kingdom of God. It doesn't say anybody who has doubts. So he didn't get angry. He didn't get angry at all. Instead, what did he do? Look at verse 22 again. He replied to the messengers, just go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. Help John refocus. John knows. See, when John was living in caves and in the wilderness and wearing animal fur and eating locusts, he also knew the Torah. He knew the old scriptures. He had them memorized. So he knew exactly what Isaiah said about the coming Messiah. So what Jesus does here is he goes, you're, you're focusing on the wrong thing, John. Hey, and what do you guys think John was focusing on? Let's say you're in prison about to die. What would you be focusing on with the miracle-working Lord outside preaching? You would be focusing on the great escape, right? I mean, we're in this together. He, he said, I'm the greatest? Really? When's he letting me out? He didn't say anything about that. But he said I was the greatest? Yeah, of anyone born of women. That's a lot. Yeah. When's he getting me out? Like I said, no mention of that. You may die in here. So that doesn't meet John's expectations. You guys see that? And unmet expectations are a scary thing. John has taken his focus off of Isaiah, off of everything he knows, and focused on, I got to get out of here. You can't do this without me. I'm a great prophet. Jesus says, no. Remember something else you said, John? Remember when you said, he must increase, but I must decrease? Did you mean that? You said something else, too. Remember when I was coming, wearing those sandals, coming down to the water, and you said... I'm not even worthy. One is coming. There he is. I'm not even worthy to loosen his sandals. Do you remember that? You can't be out right now. Your time is done. You are the forerunner. 
You prepared the way. Now I'm going, we're not going to share the limelight anymore. And if you really read Isaiah, you would know that your work is done. And you've done great. But you could have peace and joy right now instead of struggling if you just realigned your focus. So he told the disciples to be witnesses. Just tell John what you're seeing. Hurting people helped. Dead people raised. Poor people valued. Behold, no one who wishes to be great in my kingdom will not struggle with doubts. The Rob Singleton paraphrase. Jesus didn't rebuke John or the disciples. But listen, neither did he release them. He just go, doubts are okay. Everybody has them. Have a good day. No, he's going to hold on. He goes, doubts are okay. And, and I'm not going to be angry with you. But don't you stop right there. Because I'm going to tell you in a moment the danger of doubts. Here's the third thing, though. Jesus can strengthen our faith through our doubting. Let me ask you a question. Raise your hand if you've ever thought, and I'm going to start the way, if you've ever thought doubt is a sin. I have. I honestly have. I've had my doubts. I'm like, I can't believe this. I can't believe I'm sinning. I'm it's not a sin. Did you ever think of this? Could it be? I think it could be. I think it can blossom into that, not blossom or weed into that. It's not a sin unless we continue in it in spite of all the evidence to the contrary because there was a group who had all the evidence to the contrary called the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the scribes and the zealots and the priests. And you know what they kept asking Jesus to do when he proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's the Messiah? He would do these miracles and they would see it and they'd go, wow, only the Messiah could do that. Do another one. Can you do that again? Do another one. Do another one. Do another one. And he said, only an evil generation just keeps asking for miracles. I won't do miracles for them. After a while, doubt can cross over into stubborn unbelief. Look, and sin. You know there's only one unpardonable sin? Do you know what it is? Unbelief in Jesus, in spite of the evidence. Why? Because it's the Holy Spirit who saves you. So if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, if you just say, I don't believe, and you've had all the evidence, and you just spend your life going, no, then you're sawing off the very limb you're sitting on. You can't be supported by that. So if you let doubt keep going and blossoming into full-blown rejection, look how bad it can get. Pretty bad. But doubt is like guilt. How many of you, do you realize guilt's not bad? Guilt's a good thing. The Holy Spirit brings guilt when you do things wrong. And guilt, when it first starts, is meant to drive you to repentance and to change. But some people wallow in guilt and live in it, and they don't change, and that kind of guilt is sin. It's bad, because guilt is meant to move you, and if it doesn't move you, it's sin. And doubt is meant to help you to move, to press into the Savior. If it doesn't do that, it can blossom into sin. Or like fear. Fear is good if it keeps you from jumping out of a plane without a parachute, I'm pretty sure. Right? Even if your friend says, are you afraid? I'm going to do it. And he jumps without a parachute. And he, wow, he did it. He's going to die too. So fear keeps you from dumb stuff, right? But fear can keep you from good things too if you just have the wrong expectations. It's bad if it keeps you from God just because you're afraid of what he might ask you to do or what you're afraid of his holiness or you're afraid of being seen, he already sees you. See how all these things can start out good as they nudge us into the right direction, but can, but can grow into something bad? That's what's happening here. Doubt is good 
if it causes you to press in and get to know God and ask questions, but bad if you give up on God and instead live in doubt and unbelief the rest of your life. In fact, I want you to write this down. Watch this. Doubt leads to stronger faith like guilt leads to repentance. Think of it that way. Doubt leads to stronger faith, just like guilt leads to repentance in its early forms. So what Jesus does with John is he realizes focus onto where it should have been in the first place. So how do we get started? All right, again, married folks, where are you? All right, seems to be fewer of you than there were a half hour ago. That's odd. Some of you, never. Rhetorical question, I just want you to think in your heads, all right? Married folks, how did you know he was the one? How did you know she was the one? How did you know? I mean, imagining most of you dated a few people, and then you get to this one, and you go, and you tell your friends, he's the one. She's the one. My wife was telling some friends we had over for Thanksgiving the story. We were, we were sharing about how we met, and she used that line, and I knew he was the one. I told a friend, you know, a few days later, I met the one I'm going to marry. Still feel good about that, Michelle? She nodded yes, in case you're wondering. But I'm curious about that. The one, something clicks, and then you just, you just know. Well, for John the Baptist, he's allowed doubt to just go a little too far, and now it's reversing. He's going, I'm, not, I'm no longer sure you are the one. What happened in there? Singles, if you're not, where are the singles at? If you're not married at all, I don't care if you're 10, where are you? All right, one day you'll get married, maybe, unless you have the gift of celibacy. Well, how, how are you going to know it's the one? better think about that. How do you know? I mean, if you're a Christian, hopefully, let me help you out a little bit. Hopefully, if you're a believer, you're looking for someone who loves the Lord and puts them first, and then some of those things align. You know, guys, I'd get off the old, I knew. Why? Because she's a Dallas Cowboys cheerleader. <laughs> That's not deep. How do you really know? And that won't last. But how do you know what clicks to where you go, I'm positive. You know, I'm absolutely sure they're the one. Because when you know, doubt goes away. Doubt runs from that. And here's the answer. Write it down. Or do whatever you can to remember this. Here's the answer. You know through relationship. You know through getting to know the one better. Period. Married people. Tough question. Don't answer. Don't raise your hand or anything. But how do you know they're still the one? Man, our culture's crazy. We're going, well, there's no fault divorces. Well, if we fall out of love, well, there's prenuptial agreements. I'll tell you a secret, married people, how you know that's the one. You're married to them. That's how you know. God hates divorce. So work it out with that one. That one. That's how you know now on the other side. But you can start thinking or listening to secondhand information or hearing things about your spouse who you're mad at no longer talking to, and you can begin to doubt that they're the one anymore. And it can make you do bad things, like leave them. Where was John getting his information about Jesus at this point? Secondhand. He's not walking with him anymore. He's in prison. And now he's getting bits and pieces secondhand. His old disciples are feeding info to him, little by little. Where are you getting your info and developing your relationship with Jesus? Where are you getting that? Well, I read this book by Oprah that was telling me that Jesus is one of the greats in a whole group of greats and stuff. 
bad information. That's not even secondhand. That's nutty hand. Uh, I, there's religions I listen to. They're all the same. All roads lead to heaven. This Buddhist monk I met once, that, that's bad information. Well, I got a friend who says they're just as happy as any Christian, and they just meditate, and they believe. That they're pantheists. So they think God's in the trees and stuff like that, grass. Bad information. Bad information. Secondhand information. You need to get it firsthand, people. You have to. At the beginning of this chapter is a story, and I know I'm longer than usual, that sheds a lot of light. I love it because people blow right by the story, and it's beautiful. Verses 11 and 12. I'm just going to give you two verses, tell you real quick what it is, and I'll, and I'll leave you here today because I promise you, gang, you're in one of two crowds this morning. Here it is. Soon afterward, Jesus went into a town called Nain. It's where he is now as this whole thing with John the Baptist is happening. He's just outside of it. And his disciples and a great crowd were with him. Why? Because he's doing miracles and teaching, and it's happy Jesus time. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. There's a funeral. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Okay, you got the picture? A great crowd celebrating parting is coming in, and a great crowd mourning and crying and weeping and grieving is leaving. And that's what's going on. Two groups, one going into the city rejoicing, the other leaving weeping. Here's the key difference. It's as simple as this. The group going into the city was rejoicing because they were traveling with Jesus. And the group leaving the city was weeping because they knew nothing about Jesus. At most, secondhand stuff. And people will enter this Christmas season, I promise you, who know nothing about Jesus or at most, secondhand stuff. And they'll get nothing out of Christmas. And people will enter this season knowing and loving the Savior and they'll press in even more and it'll be the best Christmas they've ever had. And it'll spill over and they'll reach others that don't know him. And it'll be the best season this church has ever had. I believe that at any given time in our lives, every single one of us is in one of these two crowds. That means each one of us is either pressing into Jesus and rejoicing with him and traveling through life with him or we're getting secondhand information and we don't know and we're filled with doubts and our life has no joy. Isn't there something in between? Not really. There's just varying degrees of either one of those crowds. The real problem for John came when he shifted crowds in prison, facing certain death, unless the Lord intervened. John began to have doubts. Surely if the Lord loves me, after all I've done for him, he'll, he'll rescue me. The Messiah can, and he would. But Jesus mentioned nothing about getting John out. Now, here's the second half of verse 28 that I told you to hold in your head. It says, I tell you among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. Ready? This is my gift to you. This is incredible. You got to be ready or it'll bowl you over. Here it is. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. So what does Jesus say to you this morning? The one who's an adopted son or daughter of the living God, post John the Baptist, Pentecost, Jesus died, rose again. When that starts, even the lowest in that is greater than John, who's greater than everybody who came before. That puts you in pretty good company, doesn't it? Look what you could do for God if you realigned your focus this season. By the way, how are we greater? Because we have the Holy Spirit. 
And as crazy as this sounds, and it's hard to understand, God is three in one, three equal, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But Jesus himself said, I know you're in sorrow. In John 14, he looked at his disciples who were really messed up and really grieving because he said, I'm about to leave. And he said, don't worry, something better is coming. I can only be in one place, but the Holy Spirit's coming and he'll be in your hearts. Everywhere you go, you'll be with me. It won't be like you'll go to prison and you're not physically with me, so you're not with me. It'll be like you can be in prison and you're still with me because I'm in your heart. The lowest one in that kingdom. Oh, we should celebrate. That's incredible. And four of you get it. Here's the bottom line. Maybe this will help. Let's say you're an Olympic gymnast, okay? Guy, girl, doing the floor routine. And you are so good, gang. And you perform so incredibly. The gold medal is a lock. You won. So your coach comes to you and says, you don't even have to go out there. I mean, it doesn't matter if you go out there and trip and fall on flat on your face and walk off, you won. You can't lose. Can't lose? There's a lot of things I would have liked to have shown them. There's a lot of things I would have liked to have tried. Then why don't you go do it? Gold medal's yours. What would you do for Jesus if you knew that he was saying to you, you're the greatest. You have all the potential in the world. I am completely backing you with everything I've got. I have a mission for you. Go. You can't fail. Wouldn't you go all out? This is what's so sad about today. That's exactly what Jesus is saying in this text. And yet even some of us at a brand new church will enter this season holding on, closing our eyes in fear, in doubt. It doesn't have to be that way. I'd like to see this brand new little church triple, quadruple as we go out there and get this message to a lost and hurting and doubting world. Life becomes joyful and impactful and powerful and filled with meaning if you align with Jesus and who he is and live all out in this knowledge. So here's what I want you to do. Homework. Just make one decision. This Christmas, when you doubt or when you see things that are inconsistent and all of that, instead of running away or holding on or closing your eyes, press in. I'm going to give you a lot of challenges in the weeks ahead. I'm going to close with a challenge right now. Close with a little video I want you to look at. And you see these trees. I want to do this every Christmas. We're an outreach church. We know there are lost people out there who don't know Jesus Christ. And I know sometimes when we're taken care of, we can look at them and not care that much. But last time I checked, guys, look up here. Hell is still hot, and forever is still a long time. So we need to reach the lost. There's no harvest time like Christmas and Christmas Eve. Father, thank you so much for your word, Lord. Here's a simple story we talked about today that people just blow by. We hear about John the Baptist. See, oh, he had a few doubts, Lord, and we don't give it much more thought. But we have doubts, God. You know that. So I pray if anything was accomplished this morning that what will have been accomplished and what will keep on going on in our hearts is that we won't be afraid of our doubts, Lord, but we'll let them push us and drive us into your arms, Lord. We'll lean into you instead of running away and let our doubts strengthen our faith in you. And God, help us to live out what we say we believe this Christmas season, Lord. It's about you and nothing else. So Father, help us to seek out the lost and to fill this place with them. And we're praying for a great harvest in your name, Lord Jesus.